The Bible teaches us that after God spoke the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, He then wrote them down on stone tablets. Exodus chapter 31 verse 18 tells us, He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Imagine that. These Ten Commandments were literally written with God's finger. But this may not have been the first time God had written down these Ten Commandments. There are some Bible scholars that believe God wrote these ten sayings on the heart of Adam and Eve when He created them in the Garden of Eden. That God wrote His moral code within them. Sort of a natural law. We call it conscience. Of course, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they broke almost all of the Ten Commandments. To take something forbidden was stealing. They believed Satan's lies and his false witness. They coveted God's wisdom. Their sin led to death, the murder of the human race. They broke God's Sabbath rest. And Adam and Eve's disobedience revealed their desire to worship other gods, namely themselves. After Adam's sin, the conscience of all human beings became clouded. The moral code that God implanted in man, his sense of right and wrong, became muddled. The further succeeding generations plunged into wickedness, the further the human race drifted from this internal compass. Man's conscience became seared. This inbred internal standard became defaced. Thus, when God came to Moses on Mount Sinai to restate and to rewrite his moral code, he did so literally by writing it in stone, in stone tablets. God wrote on these two stone tablets with his own finger what he had written on man's nature at creation. You could say in the Ten Commandments, God codified conscience. He gave a universal standard that applied to all men at all times that all men would recognize. And through the ages, these Ten Commandments have served mankind well. Realize the law of Moses was not the only set of ethics floating around the ancient world. There was the Code of Hammurabi. There were others. But the Ten Commandments survived the test of time and provided the foundation for the formation of Western civilization. Here in the West, these ten sayings have become the fountainhead for common law. Our whole foundation and civilization are based on these ten sayings. And yet, despite their historical significance, it needs to be stressed to every generation that the Ten Commandments are not just for reading, or admiring, or for posting on some wall. First and foremost, they're for keeping. Once an old country boy heard his pastor preach on the Ten Commandments. He was impressed with the message. After the sermon, he said, Pastor, you sure preached a good message today. In fact, I done made up my mind to keep them Ten Commandments. Each week for the next ten weeks, I'm going to keep a different commandment till I get through all ten. Of course, he missed the point, hadn't he? It's not for us to pick and choose which commandments are convenient to obey. All ten are indispensable. These are the ten non-negotiables. It takes all ten of these commandments to make a moral life 
in a civilized society. As you know, we live today in such a permissive society. Our moral underpinnings have eroded. For most people, moral, ethical decisions have become a guessing game. I've heard it said, the pressing need in America is not for guided missiles, but for guided morals. Amen to that. I mean, too many people want to customize morality that serves their interests when and if it's needed. But God has given us absolutes. These are not the Ten Suggestions, but rather the Ten Commandments. They come with no footnotes, no qualifying comments. God's top ten are for keeping, not debating. God etched these commands into stone tablets. The first tablet of these two tablets that he handed to Moses contained the first five commandments. We studied these last week, and we noted how they dealt with man's relationship with God. On the second tablet, the last five commandments deal with man's relationship with his fellow man. These second five sayings are the basis for human society. They are the glue that holds civilization together. They teach respect for life, the importance of purity, the right of ownership, the principle of private property, the seriousness of speech, and the value of contentment. Hey, without these second five commandments, all social order would break down overnight. Anarchy would rule. We disregard this second tablet to our own peril. Well, here in Exodus 20, let's read through these last five commandments and then take a look at each one. Beginning in verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Well, here's the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The first chapters of Genesis teach us that man was created in the image and in the likeness of God. That truth has multiple implications, but it certainly means that man is unique, that he is not just another animal, that human life is sacred and holy. Human life is special to God. You remember when Noah exited the ark, God established human government and he assigned to it its duty. In Genesis 9 verse 6, he told Noah and his descendants, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Here God instituted capital punishment. But his rationale is an interesting one. Murder is not only a crime against man, it mars God's image in humanity. Thus, that makes murder a direct assault on God. Understand the difference between the terms murder and killing. Obviously, all murder involves a killing, but not all killing is considered murder. There are occasions in the Old Testament when God ordered Israel to kill their enemies. A just war, self-defense, capital punishment involve killing a human being. 
But in God's economy, these are necessary forms of killing. God gave us the gift of life. It's sacred and holy, and it should be respected, and only God is allowed to take away His gift. Murder, therefore, is when man terminates a human life of his own initiative without the sanction of God. Murder occurs whenever man sets himself up as God to decide who lives and who dies. It sort of reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon. Charlie Brown, he says to Lucy, What's this I hear about you throwing Linus out of the house? That's not legal. Lucy answers, Oh, yes, I can, and I did. Legally, a big sister can throw out a younger brother because she's bigger than him and because he bugs her all the time. And if you're smart, Charlie Brown, you won't get involved. Charlie Brown sort of slinks away and says, I'm very smart. Hey, murder is never made legal by the privilege of power. All human life is made in God's image. From the pauper to the prince, from the most accomplished adult to the most innocent baby. God forbids the person with the power, with the upper hand, to use that power to take the life of another human being. The old adage, might makes right, that isn't true. When Hitler's prejudice annihilated the Jews in his death camps, when Islamic governments slaughter Christians out of religious bigotry, when a criminal uses a gun to take a person's life so that they can take their wallet, or when society encourages the termination of a pregnancy because it will interfere with a woman's career. These are examples of murder, and they are forbidden by God. The Bible says that humans are fearfully and wonderfully made. We bear the Creator's stamp and image, and thus it is a crime to mar that image for convenience or for advancement. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ups the ante on the Sixth Commandment. He reveals the spirit of the law as well. You see, murder is the blooming of a deeper evil. In Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Notice Jesus ties the deed of murder to the seed of hatred. He knows that actions grow out of attitudes. And so he raises the plumb line. He asks us all, what is it that you're harboring in your heart? You know, there are people here today who've never shot a gun or never held a knife, but you have fired verbal bullets at your spouse. You have assassinated the character of a co-worker under your breath. You've mowed down motorist after motorist with verbal tirades that only your kids in the back seat heard. In fact, some of you have exited the freeway with a long line of victims in your wake. 1 John 3 verse 15 warns us, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. You see, there's more to keeping the sixth commandment than just never pulling the trigger on a rifle. You shall not murder requires respect for human life. 
you keep this commandment by valuing the people around you, even the people that you don't know, simply because they're people and they're made in the image of God, and God values them deeply. You keep this commandment by treating people as sacred and special, by forgiving others and controlling your anger and learning to love. Well, the sixth commandment protects the sanctity of human life while the seventh commandment protects the institution that propagates human life, and that's marriage. Here in verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. As a Sunday school class, the kids were learning the Ten Commandments. But the teacher was worried that one of the first graders would want her to explain the seventh of those commandments. I mean, what would she say? How do you explain adultery to first graders? Well, just as she feared, one of the little boys, he raised his hand and he asked the question, Hey, what does it mean to commit agriculture? <laughs> he got his words confused. But after the teacher stopped laughing, she still needed an answer. And so after a long silence, another child in the class bailed her out he answered his friend, it means you shouldn't plow in another man's field. <laughs> Which works for committing agriculture and adultery. And this sums up the seventh commandment. You see, marriage is society's basic building block. It's the central thread in the fabric of civilization. It's the incubator for the human race. Children are best loved and bred in families where both a mother and a father have a stake in the welfare and the future of that child. History teaches us civilization after civilization that when the family crumbles, the society will also crumble. And the sexual relation is the focal point of the trust in the marriage. Break that central trust and the rest of the relationship will unravel and disintegrate. You know, over the last month or so, same-sex marriage has been in the media spotlight. And if you respect the Word of God, you grieve over this country's betrayal of biblical truths and values. But in the past month since the Supreme Court's ruling, I suppose there have been a few hundred homosexual couples that have gotten married, whereas 75,000 heterosexual marriages have dissolved through divorce. And I'm sure a good number of those divorces were the result of sexual infidelity. You see, marriage today is being attacked on all fronts. Adultery is also an arch enemy. You know, often we think of adultery as a sniper's fire. That the only person that's harmed is the betrayed spouse. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Adultery is more like a pipe bomb blast. The damage is widespread and indiscriminate. Kids get hurt. They feel abandoned. Friendships get sabotaged. Extended families feel double-crossed. A dark cloud, a pale, is cast over the church. Future generations are robbed of a legacy of trust and commitment. Nothing afterwards is ever the same. Psyches get punctured. Some wounds never heal. And even though God is willing to forgive, and He certainly is, still you'll never undo the fact that your betrayal broke His heart. 
You see, most of us realize the dangers of adultery, but just recognizing them doesn't immunize us from the temptation. We have to beware. For this happens so subtly. A chance encounter with an old friend, someone you haven't seen since high school. A late night at the office when you find yourself with someone of the opposite sex. A ride home from work or my even from a church event. A conversation by the water cooler with someone who seems to care. These are all ways that you get sucked in. It starts out harmless, but the itch can rise at any time. Florence Latour, she comments in her book, she says, No good Christian man or woman gets up in the morning, looks out the window and says, My, this is a lovely day. I guess I'll go out and commit adultery. Yet many do it anyway. Perhaps the best deterrent to adultery is to realize its spiritual connotations. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a picture, a divine portrait of Christ's relationship with His church. Jesus is the faithful husband. We are called to be the committed bride. Thus, when you break the marriage vow, you distort the picture that God wants to paint to this world. Just as murder mars the image of God in man, adultery mars the image of Christ in His relationship with His church. Adultery is like walking through a museum in Paris, pulling out your pocket knife and ripping into the canvas of a masterpiece. It is a travesty of the highest order. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also raises the bar for sexual fidelity. In Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28, there He said to His disciples, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just as he is with murder, God is also concerned with the seed as much as he is the deed. It's been said promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. It's a safe bet you'll never commit adultery if you never think that lustful thought. That's why the battle with sexual temptation always begins in the mind. We need to guard our thoughts. We need to corral our imagination and our fantasies and bring every thought under the control of Jesus Christ. Obedience to the seventh command begins with respect for purity and the sanctity of marriage. You know, all too often people in our society, they find it easier just to go out and get a new spouse. I mean, why work through the difficulties with the spouse you've got when you can just throw them back and catch another fish? It's been said that affairs are called love for the lazy. Marriage is like gardening. It takes work. It takes a lot of planting and weeding and watering and watching and waiting. Hey, plow in your own field and you will eventually yield a bumper crop of blessing. Well, the Eighth Commandment is in verse 15. You shall not steal. Notice the Sixth Command. It protects the sanctity of human life. The Seventh, the sanctity of marriage. Now, this commandment protects the sanctity of private property. Actually, all property belongs to God. 
There is a deed somewhere that says that I own my home. At least me and the bank own my home. But that's really an illusion. Ancient Israel had it right. All land belongs to God. Israel knew that they all lived on borrowed parcels. Job 1 verse 21 sums up the Bible's view on private property. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything you and I own really belongs to God. It's on loan to Him to us. That's why taking another person's possessions is not only a sin against man, but it's also a sin against God. There are three ways that you can accumulate property. Gift, toil, and theft. God has established the first two principles for gathering wealth through labor and through love. Both of these principles get articulated in Ephesians 4 verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. And why? That he may have something to give him who has need. Paul tells us we should labor in order to love. But theft is the violation of both. When you rip off another person's property, you're depriving them of the rewards of their honest toil, and that is certainly not a loving act. Several years ago, Florida State suspended a star football player after he was charged for shoplifting. The kid had walked into a store and he'd walked out with $400 worth of clothing after only spending 20 bucks. Reportedly, when he was interviewed, the young man made this comment. It's not like I've murdered the president. I mean, he didn't think it was a big deal. It's not like I've done any big crime. But you know, you could say that stealing is a form of murder. For notice the progression here in these commands. The sanctity of life, followed by the sanctity of the institution that propagates life, followed by the sanctity of private property that is then used to sustain life. In a sense, to rob another person of their property is to kill them by a slow death. When we think of robbery, you know, we think of a masked man with a gun protruding from his pocket. But there are many different ways to violate the Eighth Commandment. Shoplifting has become an American epidemic. Here's a recent headline. Shoplifting is America's biggest, fastest growing, most expensive crime. Ordinary people will steal everything from TVs to Bibles to Preparation H. Now, I can sort of understand the Preparation H there in emergency cases. But we'll give you a Bible for free, okay? You don't have to steal the Bible. We'll just give you one. But this, this is why buying gas has gotten to be such a hassle. I mean, you go buy gas today, and it's like they want you to turn over everything to them just so you can pull the nozzle out of the thing and pump it into your car. I mean, stores have gotten tired of people pulling up to the pump, filling up their tank, and then driving off without paying. They're trying to protect themselves. Shoplifting is a form of stealing. Pilfering is another form of theft. I mean, loading up on all those pads and pencils purchased by your employer. That's a form of thievery. Stealing the company laptop. It's been estimated 17% of business losses are the result of stealing from the company's own employees. 
taking an hour and a half lunch when you're only supposed to have an hour. Not working the full eight hours when that's what you're getting paid for. These are also forms of theft. There are also some accepted business practices today that are forms of burglary. Exorbitant pricing, false advertising, bait and switch, unfair wages. These are all forms of violating this commandment. And there's one other form of stealing I'll mention this morning. In Malachi 3 verse 8, God asks the question, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. In ancient Israel, the tithe or the tenth, that's what the word means. It was not the people's to give. It belonged to God. All that Israel had belonged to God, and He expected them to honor Him with the tenth. The first tenth of their produce. And God has the same expectations for us. To hoard what we know to give is a form of stealing. We can even be guilty of stealing from God. The ninth commandment is found in verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Every society is held together by honest, reliable communication. If we can't trust what people say... It's impossible for us to have mutually beneficial relationships. Thus, business and marriage, the legal system, all social interactions ultimately break down if people don't tell the truth. And this kind of deterioration has already begun in our society. Have you noticed? I mean, sadly, today a man's word is no longer his bond. Contracts aren't worth the paper they're printed on, let alone handshakes. Our judicial system is always being circumvented by skillful lawyers who twist the truth to win the case. Today, the phrase political promise is considered an oxymoron. People aren't truthful anymore. Bearing truthful witness strikes at the very heart of a person. I think this issue reveals a person's core character quicker than anything else. How important is it To you, to be known as a man or woman of your word. Every day, your personal integrity is on the line. An honest society is built on honest people. And God wants us to be high-fidelity folks. Notice this ninth commandment. It says specifically, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We should be truthful in our comments about other people. That means if you don't have all the information, there should be no communication. How many people have had their good reputation destroyed because another person with loose lips made an idle comment when they didn't even know the whole story? Here's a good way to define gossip. It's hearing something you like about someone you don't. It's been observed a tongue three inches long can kill a man six feet tall. You see, gossip is nothing but character assassination. Oh, the trouble caused by the tongue. James 3 verse 6 says it best, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. 
The famous Greek poet Homer was quoted as saying, The tongue of man is a twisty thing. Homer also said, That ball is way back. It's out of here. He's tried to throw in a joke there. That was a quote by Homer. Reminds me of the woman who got mad at her pastor. So she started spreading vicious rumors about him all around town. Her gossip severely damaged his reputation. And after several years, the Lord convicted her of her sin. So she came back to apologize to the pastor. The pastor told her, said, ma'am, I'd be happy to forgive you. But first, I want you to go throughout our town. And I want you to place a feather on the doorstep of every house. She agreed to the penance. But when she returned, her pastor told her, she said, he said, now go back and retrieve each of those feathers. Of course, the woman balked. That's impossible. By now, the wind has blown them all everywhere. They're gone. And that's when the pastor told her, that's right. And I gladly forgive you, but realize you can never undo the damage that your untruths have done. We need to be careful with what we say. I've got an acrostic. I hope you'll remember the next time you're tempted to speak of someone without all the facts. It's the word think. T-H-I-N-K. First, think T. Is this true? I mean, is this really true? Do I know it's true? Second, think H. Is it helpful? You know, it might be true, but does telling it really accomplish anything constructive? Think I. Is it inspiring? Does this offer anyone any hope or encouragement or insight or anything beneficial? Fourth, think in. Is it necessary? Is, this a legit, is there a legitimate reason that this thing needs to be said to this person that I'm talking to? Is it necessary? And then fifth, think K. Is it kind? Is this a loving, caring comment to make? Hey, think before you speak. Well, the tenth and the final commandment is recorded in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor his Harley, nor his plasma TV, nor his swimming pool, nor her new countertops, or that new SUV she's driving around in, nor anything that is your neighbor's. One day, Abraham Lincoln was walking down the street when he noticed a dad with two boys by his side. The boys were screaming and they were pushing each other as the dad was trying to maintain some order. And that's when Lincoln walked over and he asked the man if there was a problem. The dad replied, oh yes, I've got three walnuts and each of my sons wants two. And that, in a nutshell, is the problem with the human race. We're never grateful. We never have enough. We always want more. Human beings are incurably selfish. We are never satisfied with God's provision for us. Rather than be thankful that God has blessed our neighbor, we want what they've got. Ours is the gimme generation. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And that's the attitude that violates the 10th commandment. 
Now, don't misunderstand. There is nothing wrong with wanting nice things, with working hard and saving your money and purchasing amenities that will better your life. The Bible knows nothing of asceticism or sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. Austere living is not a means to godliness. Poverty doesn't equal piety. Rather, the Bible teaches us that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with wanting a house, as long as it's just not your neighbor's house, or maybe their lake house. If you're single, there's nothing wrong with desiring a wife. Proverbs 18, verse 22 tells us, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Just make sure that the wife you find is it your neighbor's wife. There's nothing wrong with desiring a new car or a new laptop or new golf clubs or a new smartphone. But here's what happens. We're not even thinking about a new smartphone. We've got our iPhone 3 or 4 or whatever it is, and it does a pretty good job. We're happy with this iPhone. we got it loaded down with information and smart stuff. We're happy with our old iPhone until all of a sudden we see someone else's iPhone 5 or 6 or 7 or whatever it is now. It's razor thin, and it's got Siri, the little voice activation thing, and it's got more pixels. It's got pixels, man. More pixels than I've got. And rather than be happy for our friend who got this new phone, we're upset that her phone is now better than my phone. You see, this is the attitude of covetousness. It's a desire born out of prideful selfishness, and it is a sin before God. Author Mark Buchanan, he, he wrote an article for Christianity Today. It reads like this. I belong to the cult of the next thing. It has its own doctrines. Charge it, instant credit, no down payment, no interest for three months. It has pastors, evangelists, and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own chapels and temples, malls, superstores, and club warehouses. Its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. Its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing proclaims the kingdom of stuff is at hand. I'm sure you've heard the story of the tycoon who was asked, how much money do you need to be satisfied? The rich man answered, one more dollar. One more dollar. Here's a truth we all should take to heart. Contentment is not the result of getting more. It is the result of wanting less. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled the person who lives a happy life is the man or woman who hungers after God. You see, our real need is spiritual, and you can never meet a spiritual need with a physical thing. Only God can satisfy the human heart. Realize, these first nine commandments, they deal primarily with human conduct. But this last commandment, it deals exclusively with the heart, with the desires. It cuts to the core of our problem. 
We're self-centered and we're greedy by nature. And, and it was this commandment that caused Paul to realize that truth and his need for the gospel. In Romans 7, Paul tells us in verse 7, For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. It was the law that awoken in Paul his need for a change of heart. Paul knew he could measure up to these first nine commands, but not this final commandment. This is where his heart betrayed him. This is where he stumbled. This is where he knew he needed help. You know, as we've looked at God's top ten, I have to admit that there have been times when I've stumbled at all ten. I've made idols out of possessions or people in my life. I've worshipped God only in ways that were convenient for me. There have been times when I've confessed God's name, but I've taken it in vain because I haven't really been wanting to do His will. I've been guilty of putting personal advancement ahead of rest with God in relationships with others, keeping a Sabbath rest. I've neglected my parents. In fact, when you raise the bar from action to attitude, I've been guilty of murder and adultery. I've stolen and lied and coveted what belonged to my neighbor. It reminds me of the mom who sent her son to college. and She wanted to be certain that he had God's Word. And so she went down to the post office and she mailed him a Bible. And as she handed the clerk the package, he asked her, Ma'am, is there anything breakable in your package? The mom replied, Only the Ten Commandments. And any honest attempt at keeping these ten sayings in spirit and truth will ultimately reveal your insufficiency, your inadequacy. We can't do this on our own. This is why we need outside help. This is why we need the gospel, for only Jesus can change our hearts. The law could conform our character. It could reveal our shortcomings. But only Jesus can change our heart. Paul said, it was by the law that I knew that I was covetousness. But the law couldn't do anything to help him overcome that. Only Jesus can take out that selfish, sinful heart and replace it with a heart that loves God and loves others. John MacArthur has a wonderful version of God's top ten. It's based on the truth that all these ten commands are really about love. Follow with me through his list. The first commandment. Love is loyal. The second, love is faithful. The third commandment, love is reverent. The fourth, love is intimate. The fifth, love is respectful. The sixth, love is harmless. The seventh, love is pure. The eighth, love is unselfish. The ninth command, love is truthful. And then the tenth, love is content. In other words, God's top ten they're a portrait of a life of love. There was a pastor who wrote a weekly column for his local newspaper. One week he ran out of time. He had nothing to print. And so instead of rehashing an old editorial, he just printed Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, the Ten Commandments. The next week, the newspaper received a letter from a reader. She wrote, Please cancel my subscription to your paper. Your editorials are getting too personal. Well, the Ten Commandments, they do get personal, don't they? 
They expose our, our buried blemishes. They reveal our hidden hang-ups. And yet if we confess that we've fallen short, if we ask God to uproot our selfishness and give us a loving heart, if we aspire to live this higher, nobler life, God will grant our request. For God always equips us to do what He calls us to do. This morning, if you let Him, God will do a work in your heart. He wants to fill your heart with love for Him and love for others. Love is what Christianity is all about. And here's what love looks like. The Ten Commandments.